You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green-Smith, episode 499. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP 499. there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing or your partner asks what's bothering you and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy to implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Hey, hey, pod people, Amy here, and I am so excited about this episode. But before we get into it, I have an announcement that is a little bit bittersweet. And you may or may not have felt this coming, but I am choosing to shut down kind of the current iteration of what the podcast is. I have really been paying attention to how things feel for me energetically, and it just feels like it is a nice completion point coming up on 500 episodes. So I will drop this episode for you this week, obviously, and then next week I will do my 500th and final episode. So I do so hope that you will tune in. Here's the deal. I love this platform. I love this medium, and I would love to continue podcasting. But in this current incarnation, it's not it's not working for me. And if you've heard anything that I've said over the last you know, decade, it's been to genuinely listen to your intuition, listen to what feels right for you. And I have noticed that I've been attached to maintaining the podcast for reasons other than it bringing me genuine excitement and thrill. And, you know, it's been almost 11 years. It's been a minute. But here's what I really, really want you to hear. I want there to be a new development, a next level, a brand new show, a new YouTube series, something else. But what I've gotten really, really clear about is how much I love collaboration. And all of the podcasts that I listen to the most devoutly and the ones that I've had the most fun doing are when I have a co-host. So you may remember that for the first eight years of this podcast, Mr. Smith was my co-host and we had so much fun, so much banter. And then for a short stint, I did a podcast series with a friend of mine called Not Another Self-Help Pod, where we had tons of fun together. And all the shows I listen to are co-hosted by folks who have a really great rapport, lots of great intel to share with everyone, but so much funny and fun banter. So here's what I would love to throw out to all of you. 
If you know anyone who's in a personal development sphere, whether they are another coach or a therapist, a psychologist, a PhD, anyone in sort of this self-help bubble, and you think, oh my God, if if that person got together with Amy Green Smith, that would be the end-all be-all podcast. I would love, love, love to hear your suggestions or if you think that might be you. Maybe you have some sort of wellness brand or you think every time you listen to me, like, I feel like she's kind of like my best friend, <laughs> but she doesn't know it. In fact, one of my one of my best friends I met in that exact same way where it started as a parasocial relationship where she had listened to the podcast for years and she is, in fact, my best friend now. <laughs> so if that happens to be you and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I would love to do a podcast. I would love to talk about these same concepts around boundaries, speaking up, all of the intricacies of personal growth. Please send me an email at holler at amygreensmith.com and just give me a shout out and let me know that you are interested and or someone else that you think would be an amazing fit. And I've really just been feeling into intuition this year. So as you know, I always do New Year's episodes that are focused around goal setting. And one of the things that we talk about quite frequently is what is sort of your word for the new year. And for me, 2024 is about ease and it's about intuition. So I'm not forcing anything, but I'm open to pretty much everything. I'm interested in anyone who might be interested in me, but I'm also not going to force myself to do a podcast that just doesn't feel right for me at this particular space and time. But I'm never going to say never (laughs) because I do so love this medium and I'm not closing down the channel. It'll still be open. You can still get all the archived episodes. But I just wanted to send that out as a message to you, to the universe that, hey, I would love to find this incredible co-host where we could start a new process and pave 2024 with a brand new energy. If that is you, or if you know someone you really, really want me to have my eyes on, please shoot me a message at holler at amygreensmith.com. And I would absolutely love to hear from you or your thoughts or your advice or any direction that you think would be really awesome to hear from. I think when you are in the quote expert space, it can get really easy to get sucked into what you should do, what you have to do. And I really hope that I've been a messenger for you and a resource for you to recognize that, no, you get to do whatever the fuck it is you want to do. And that if something feels like it's pulling teeth or you would rather kick rocks than do your current job or stay in your current marriage or still stay connected to your best friend who you think you might have outgrown, that's time to listen to your intuition. I really, truly hope that by me taking a stand of what I need in my work life, that it also gives you the permission to do the same. And that's a really kind of great segue into my brilliant guest that I have on the show today. One of the things that I have seen consistently in my career 
are women who keep coming up empty in their romantic partnerships. In fact, it's not uncommon that once I start working with somebody and they get really truly anchored into their truth and their worth and their enoughness, they stop tolerating bullshit marriages or relationships, nonsensical jobs that don't value who they are anymore or friendships that are bringing you down. It's really common that people start whittling those relationships out of their life. And I oftentimes like to say that your bullshit tolerance gets really, really low. So today I'm going to be dialing up one of my dear friends and colleagues. Her name is Kate Anthony. She is the author of The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage. She's also the host of the critically acclaimed and New York Times recommended podcast, The Divorce Survival Guide. And I have sent so many folks over her way because she's just an incredible resource from everything from what actually actually constitutes abuse all the way to how do I not screw up my kids, all the way to how how does divorce even work, how do I pick a lawyer, how do I set myself up financially. She is the vare mecum on all things divorce. She is also the creator of the groundbreaking online coaching program, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, which helps women make the most difficult decision of their lives using coaching tools, relationship education, geeky neuroscience, you know I'm on board with that, community support, and deep self-work. Kate is also certified as a domestic violence advocate, a co-parenting specialist, and a high-conflict divorce coach. So let's give her a ring. I think you are going to really enjoy this conversation. Kate! Hi. Hi, Amy. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I am so excited about this book that is incredibly necessary and needed. Mm-hmm. And I want to start just quickly around the introduction in your book because you talk about yeah. your specific divorce and about how you were looking for a really clear lightning bolt moment of okay, it's time mm-hmm. to time to go. And which then kind of created the impetus for the book of, I want people to have a much easier time being able to discern. So can you talk just a little bit about your personal journey with it? Yeah. I mean, I really was, I was like, I was like, say in the book, like I was looking for a burning bush. (laughs) I was like, somebody tell me what to do. Yeah. I talk about how like we were in group couples therapy and I didn't really know anyone divorced at that point. Emmett was really little and I was sort of really struggling with this for a number of years, as most people are, uh, women in particular, almost 70% of divorces are initiated by women. So we're the ones that are really agonizing over this for a long time. And I didn't know anyone who had actually gone through it yet, other than my parents and, you know, whatever. And so I was asking people, like, I would find someone who had gotten divorced and I'd be like, how did you know? How did you know when it was time? Like, I sort of have this metaphor, and I don't even know if it's clear or not, but you always think there's one more thing. 
that you could do that's going to just change everything. And so it's almost like you've got this blank, this wall, you're in the dark and you're feeling around and you feel a light switch and you flick it, nothing happens. And then you're feeling around the wall. And, oh, but God, there's another one. And you flick it. There's another one. And you flick it. Nothing is turning it on, but you're sure that you can't stop feeling around the wall because one of those switches is going to be the thing. And if you give up searching that wall for the, you know, and turning all the switches, you're going to quit before you've hit gold. Right. And you're just signing up for darkness. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're signing up for darkness. Exactly. But you really think, I can't quit now because surely that one workshop, I can't quit now because surely that one book, if I just get him to understand, if he just reads, if I just explain to him, right? And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Um, and so I was asking people, like, how do you know when you've, when you've really hit the end of those switches? Um, and my dear friend said to me, you know, when you know, you'll know. And I was like, but I don't know. But that's <laughs> like, not helpful. Ultimately, when I knew, I knew. Um, and I, I had a lightning bolt moment where I realized that I had been staying for my son. I had been told over and over that staying for my son was the thing to do, was important. I realized in that very clear moment that I had to leave for him. Right. I just had this moment of clarity where I realized the model of relationship that we were handing him was one in which he was going to become emotionally abusive. He was going to be manipulative. He was going to be critical. He, all of these things, he, he was going to choose a partner that was codependent, that he was, you know, manipulating and gaslighting all of these things. Like I just saw it play out sure. really clearly. And as soon as I did, I was like, oh, that's it. I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go for him. He was three years old and I just saw his whole future. And I was like, nope, nope. And I realized in that moment that his dad and I probably possibly brought out the worst in each other. He, it's certainly that relationship brought out the worst in me. Yeah. I had never been the person that I was in that marriage in any relationship before that. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that I have not been that person in any relationship since, but I just knew that I needed to give my kids some, the opportunity, the, uh, just the opportunity to see and feel something different. You know, it, it's interesting. I, my husband's best friend, she talks all the time about her parents' divorce. And that was one of the crucial reasons why her dad chose to leave was, and it was, she didn't get to glean this information until many, many years later because they were kind of pitted against one another, that whole thing. But he didn't want his daughters to think that this is what marriage looked like. And so he knew that that meant a cost to their relationship in the interim in order for something else to be modeled for her. And I know you you start off the book with that. Like, let's just yeah. call out the elephant in the room, which from reading your book, I'm realizing that a lot of this narrative around staying for the children is based off of faulty research. So can you talk a little bit about that whole concept, because I do think 
that there are still many folks who are bought in. It's still like the whole uh, Jenny McCarthy thing about autism. Like it's like once it's out there, everyone just believes shit. Right. And so. Right. That's right. That's right. And and so now once it's out there that it's detrimental for kids to be, quote, from broken homes, which I know is like one of your favorite terms <laughs> is love it. it is so frustrating because no there's actually been that's debunked and so what is it yeah. that you share with folks when they say i'm worried about the implications on my children should i stay for them everyone is concerned about not fucking up their kids you're asking the right question right like we're looking at the right things unfortunately there is this body of research that came out, I think this book came out in 2000, which is mm-hmm. shocking to me that it was this recent, right? Um, the study that this woman did, quote, study, um, Judith Wallerstein, and she wrote a book about it. And it said, in all circumstances, divorce is bad for children, that children from broken homes grow up to be drug addicts and alcoholics and have relationship problems. They have depression and anxiety and yada, yada, yada. Um, and it turned out that the research that research, quote, research that she did in this book was from one very small community in one county in one state. And it was a small group, too, wasn't it? It was only like 20 people or something. 20 people. And there was domestic violence in almost all of these cases, in okay. almost all of the marriages. Right. And so it's like, what, what screwed up these kids? Was it the divorce or was it the fact that there was domestic violence? We know that domestic violence often leads to post-separation abuse. Like they don't, they don't stop with the divorce, right? So this is not research. This was not a study. This was not peer-reviewed, anything. Um, and there are plenty of other reasons that these kids might have gone on to have all of these issues in their lives as they grew up. And what the real research shows. Um, because there have now been actual scientific studies done over sort of broad, broader swaths of the population. Um, and what we know now is that it's not divorce that screws up kids. It's toxicity. It's being raised in a toxic home or in a toxic divorce. So if you can divorce amicably and do do this thing collaboratively, you're, you have a much lower chance um, of screwing up your kids. You're not going to screw up your kids, right? If you provide them with therapy, if you have the right conversations with them, if you support them through their experience, all of this, they're going to be okay. Listen, we're not going to like be Pollyanna-ish about it. Sure. They're going to, they're going to have issues in the short term. Yeah. There'll be behavioral issues. There will be, you know, uh, acting out. Yeah. That's acting out of course. all of the things, right? Of course, they're going to be depressed that they might have some anxiety if they're, you know, going back and forth between homes. Like there's a, there is a sense of, of disruption in a young life. But if you actually give them the proper support channels, wh- whether, you know, by parenting and nurturing, and then also other su- additional support through therapy or school and all of those things, they will be okay in the long term. I think something we don't think about because, you know, again, you write that this is focused primarily on 
cisgendered heterosexual relationships, right? With a traditional Mm -hmm. like male-female dynamic. Something that we miss because typically women are so focused on everyone but themselves. Like how can everyone be okay? Is they miss the message that they're sending to their children about how women should be treated. And that piece, whether you have girls or boys or anything else in the spectrum, that's still such a huge message about what you are deserving of. And I think we miss what we model, like what we model for children is what they capture way more than what we've made up based off of some archaic and misinformed study. (laughs) A hundred percent, Amy. You know, one of the most powerful questions I'll ask my clients who are really struggling with this is, is this the relationship you want for your kid? Yes. And nine times out of 10, they're like, my God, no, of course not. And I'm like, okay, then that's your answer. Because we tend to repeat the relationship models that are handed to us. That's right. And we are the first really like Gen X, like we're like the first generation that's going, hmm, actually, let me choose, (laughs) Right? right? I get to choose. But even that, and especially for Gen X, right, we are so conditioned that motherhood equals sacrifice, that partnership equals um, giving up of ourselves. That's right. Um, That women are so conditioned to just abandon ourselves in so many ways. Um, And that's not good for your kids, boys or girls, right? Like I have a boy. I was like, hell no, is my kid going to be an abuser? How no is he going to choose to prey upon women? That's right. Holy fuck. Yeah. No, no way. Not on my watch. <laughs> not on my watch. And, you know, by the way, this was at a time when I was, you know, not who I am now, right? I was, this was like, I had the seeds of this in me at that time, but this was when I was supremely codependent, didn't have a connection to my sense of self. I didn't know who I was. I was completely lost in this, in this marriage that was, uh, you know, abusing me. And, um, I, I was, I was bending myself into pretzels to try to be enough and be the right thing and be the person that he, you know, that I kept thinking he wanted or needed me to be. And that's what I was teaching my son that womanhood was. Right. Right. Get ready for a wife who serves you and twists and contorts and shapeshifts and only tends to your needs. And mm-hmm. and you brought up a couple of points that I definitely want to kind of go down the rabbit hole with. One is I'm really curious about the differences in generations because I've noticed with my own clients, elder millennial and and beyond and older tend to have the most difficult times with this, I think largely due to social conditioning. Thank God, Gen Z, and I'm praying for Alpha to be the massive change, but they're not here for it. They're like, fuck off. I'm going to marry my best friend just so that we can have benefits and so that we can, you know, they're like, I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And they're recreating relationship. But I'm curious what you see here, because one of the things that I find is that there is a real pull or a difficulty parsing out. Do I really want traditional relationship the way I've always been told it's supposed to look because I want it, Right. because I genuinely want a connection with somebody else and I prefer monogamy, 
Or is this something I've just been told that I want? And and so and sometimes it's both. And that's when it gets a little bit sticky. But I'm curious if you notice this this dynamic play out with your clients based off of generation and what sort of barriers they have to surmount based off just their age category. I wouldn't see it with my clients because they're coming to me. So they're in this conundrum, right? So if they're not struggling with it, they're not really coming to me. So I don't know that I am a, Mm -hmm. um, an accurate bellwether for like the shift and the change, right? Because people come to me who are struggling with this. I will say that as a mother of an 18 year old and watching his friends and how they do relationships and how they talk about relationships and his relationship with his girlfriend of a year and a half that he's like, you know, met his soulmate and like, they're so bonded and adorable. It's the cutest thing in the world. Um, and it's so sweet to watch. They, there's no jealousy. There's there's total open communication. They're basically, they're like, we're not doing that. Yes. But really, I see it with all of their friends, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the levels of communication and the intimacy. And importantly, the intimacy in male friendships. Yes. It's fucking gorgeous. Yes. And it's about fucking time. But I also think we can't overstep that there are so many different socioeconomic things that have changed for women. Like we can buy our house on our own. We can get credit cards on our own. We can pleasure ourselves on our own. We can do so many things without men. So we need them to actually be desirable. And I'm seeing a massive rift in the male-female dynamic in that women have been doing, quote, the work, going to therapists, reading books, trying to figure things out for decades. And men are like, it's your problem. You figured out you're too emotional. You're too sensitive. And now they're women are getting like, oh, you don't bring anything to the table? Goodbye. I'm out. Bye. And then men are figuring out like, oh, do I either stay in my righteous anger or do I actually level the fuck up? And there's a big call to action happening there. And I, I've i seen it in so many of my friends and their relationships. And it's really, really interesting where the next, even just the next 10 years where things are going to shift. I'm fascinated by it. Well, and also 65% of women who get divorced say they never get married again. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this like pool of single men who are not going to get repartnered right unless they level up um i think this is a lot of the reasons that they that they date younger women right because the younger women haven't quite figured out this inequality and that what we think they're bringing to the table is actually pretty transparent and flimsy. Have you seen that meme that's like, men, what do you bring to the table? And then there's like the table and it's like a completely destroyed picnic table. It's like (laughs) smashed to smithereens and like rot, what wood rot. Because the emotional intelligence is pretty much just anger. (laughs) That's right. That's right. A disservice Mm -hmm. that we've done, I think to, to, I mean, obviously to men. Yeah, Uh absolutely. I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to talk about narcissism Mm -hmm. and I want to tell you just briefly kind of what I see largely on social media, sometimes with clients and students where they will ascribe or pathologize narcissism, not just on their partner, but on maybe their mom or coworkers, et cetera, where 
it is an easy way to say we have conflict. So I'm going to label you as toxic or a narcissist or something I'm unqualified mm -hmm. to diagnose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that I don't have to level up myself, so that I don't have to have difficult conversations, so that I don't have to establish boundaries. Because when you get to stand in that victimhood place, you don't have to do a damn thing except be mad at that other person. So I'm curious because obviously there are narcissists, there are sociopaths, there are ma malignant narcissists. How do you figure out because I truly believe there is healthy narcissism. I think it's a it's a it's a spectrum, a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. We all we have to have a little narcissism just to fucking survive and not die. So how do you figure out, OK, is my partner only concerned about themselves? Do they not exhibit empathy or is it I'm being a little too harsh or I'm not understanding maybe their childhood wounding? Like, how do you appropriately assess that you are up against narcissism? You know, it's such a good question. And the the way that I like to think about it is that there are a lot of people that are looking for a label or a diagnosis so that they can... Um, <laughs> The women that I work with in particular, they're like, so is this narcissism? Is this gaslighting? Is this, they want to label mostly so they can bring it back to their partner and say, look, you're a narcissist. <laughs> if you would now just go to therapy and, and, and get cured of your narcissism, then everything would be okay. Or look, what you're doing is abuse. Surely you say that you love me. You don't want to abuse me. So you're going to, you're going to change that now that we know what it is. Right. 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 Um, and again, it feels like, oh my God, look, I found the light switch. I found the switch on the wall and it says this. And so let's turn it on and like enlighten the, the relationship in this way. And in the history of the world, <laughs> no abuser has gone, oh, oh my, oh my goodness, I'm an abuser. Let me change, right? Like literally never. However, it is important if you're looking for the label for your own understanding, your own edification, so that you can understand what's happening in the relationship and understand what you can and can't do about it, that is useful. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, something that I always offer to people outside of any type of label is to say, in any situation that you have, the arguments that you're going through, do they ever take ownership? Is there ever right. an element of ownership? Because right. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard that the the man in the relationship will say, well, I wouldn't do that if you wouldn't do X, Y, or Z, where there's constantly a blame. There's zero ownership. But also, we haven't cultivated an environment or a culture where men know how to even take ownership or have self-awareness. You know, we tell boys to kind of shut down an entire half of who they are. And then you have access essentially to one emotion, which is anger. That's the one where you're permissible to have. Everything else is now more effeminate, which is also why we shit on the queer community, right? Because right. 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 they are exemplifying a feminine characteristic. So that is one thing that I think if if you're listening and you're hearing this going, gosh, I've been so caught up in this label. I do think it's really important to recognize what it is. And to your point, yeah, I'm sure it's a bit more rampant. The same way 
there are way more trans people now because there's visibility and we're talking about it. They've been existing this entire damn time. Right, exactly. And I was having this conversation yesterday about homosexuality and how one of the things people ask is like, well, does, does all this show up in heteros in, in, in homosexual relationships as much as it does in heterosexual relationships? And I'm like, nobody gets out of patriarchy alive. <laughs> That's right. We don't get out of it unscathed. And because we've all, most of us, certainly in Gen X, were raised in these heteronormative relationships, whether we were gay or not, and whether our parents were gay or not, heteronormativity has been the norm for, you know, so we were all raised in it. Right. That's our schools. That's our social functions. That's our media. That's our friends. That's that's all you see. Totally. And it's going to be so fascinating to see what happens to the next generations who are raised with queer parents, with trans parents. And it's just not a thing. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I can't wait either. I want to switch into this concept around abuse because this is another one that I come up across a lot with my clients and students. And there is a real pivotal shift when you have to grieve the fact that you have been abused. I think, and this is what I always say, we are rooting for our marriage. We are rooting for our partner. We're not rooting for the idea of it all falling apart and not being what we wanted. So that is why we say, hey, I think you're a narcissist. You can work on it, right? Like that's yeah. that's why we want to help them with their childhood wounds. We're rooting for it to succeed. So I do see a lot of people who have to even grapple and wrap their head around the idea that what you're experiencing is actually abusive. And I know you talk about this a lot in your book in chapters five, six, and seven. And I thought it was really key here to talk about some of the abuse elements that we don't necessarily think of inside of marriage. Of course, we think about emotional abuse, but we don't necessarily think about cyber abuse or financial abuse. We just think, oh, these are the roles that we've adopted inside our relationship. He makes the money. I have a hobby, right? <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> right. So, uh-huh. um, And I mean, marital rape wasn't even outlawed in all 50 states till the 90s. And in 30 states, it is still perfectly okay, perfectly legal to rape your wife as long as you don't have to force her. So if she's asleep or passed out drunk, it's totally legal. Wow. <laughs> In 30 states. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. So talk a little bit about some, I would love anecdotal stories, something where people can say, oh shit, I didn't realize that was financial abuse. I didn't realize that was spiritual abuse. I didn't realize, well, I can tell you a shit ton about spiritual abuse. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But or cyber abuse, like what are some instances where people that you've worked with where people went, holy shit, that's abuse Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and kind of reckoned with it as um, basic as this might sound. This can be mind blowing to a lot of people. If you are a stay at home parent. And your spouse goes to a job and makes the money. It's not his money. It's your money. If you are legally married in the United States, and I think Canada too, um, this is this is your money. It is collective. You are doing a job and he is doing a job. He couldn't do that job if you weren't there supporting the family. So um, 
if you do not have access to all accounts, if your name is not on them, if you don't have logins, if you are in any way being held back from knowing what all of your financial picture looks like. If you say to your spouse, hey, how many accounts do we have? And how much money is in each account? Is my name on all of those accounts? And they say, don't you worry your pretty little head about it, sweetheart. Or like, why do you want to know? That's like, that's that's my domain. It's my money. I'm, I'm handling it. You're fine. You get your allowance. If you get an allowance, uh-uh. If that is their response, that is financial abuse. And their response should be, you know what? Let's sit down. And I will go over all of the accounts because it is important that you understand and that you know what our financial picture is. That should be the response. Absolutely. Not having access to all of the funds, being given an allowance. When your spouse buys himself a Mercedes and you get a Honda Civic, that mm -hmm. is a sign of financial abuse. It, in, it's in inequality, inequity inside of your financial house. That's right. I know somebody, this is a true story. Her husband is the the breadwinner. Um she was a stay-at-home mom and she was expected out of her, her money which she wasn't making to buy everything to do with the children. He paid for the um the house, the mortgage, all of that, but everything children related was her domain and her responsibility. Wow. She's she's an actress. So she was she had some money, but then there was the pandemic. Sure. And then the SAG strike and there was no money. And he was working, making plenty of money. And she went into huge debt. Um, buying diapers, paying for preschool, things like that. And then she when she went to him and said, I can't do this anymore, he said, Well, I can't trust you with money because look how bad you are at with money because you're in this much debt. Wow. So he financially abused her into all of this debt and then accused her of being bad with money. Which is gaslighting, <laughs> financial gaslighting. Exactly. And wow. you know, just me saying that to her was kind of like, uh, oh, right? Because when you're when you're living with someone who's abusing you, their narrative, it's like you're you're like, oh, okay, oh, okay. You lose perspective. When you have somebody who is supposed to love you and they're abusing you, when they tell you that you're doing something wrong, you you think, oh, they must know me better than I know myself because they love me. They must, why would they be saying that to me if it wasn't true? Well, and we also have such a regard for authority or anyone who speaks with authority. If friends in your life or your partner or your mom speaks with authority as though what they are saying is true, you are just bad at managing money. Naturally, our brains go, oh, there must be something to that. Even if even if it's not malicious or ill-intended. But in this situation, obviously it is. So recognizing that even if someone speaks with authority, you get to be the final say on if that is true for you or not. Like reckoning with what's their truth and what's my truth. And sometimes that's very, very conflicted. One of the hardest things is that if you've been living in abuse for this long, you lose sight of that. You like you naturally do because this is what gaslighting is. Like gaslighting is not lying, right? Gaslighting is 
is lying for the purpose of destroying and distorting your your sense of reality of what is real so if you're losing your grip on reality and what's true for you there's probably gaslighting and abuse happening and so it's a tall order to say to someone you know you get to choose like you get to decide what's true for you when they're actually don't even know what's true for them anymore. right that's right? right it's it's so confusing which is why the the you know, the baseline work of developing the sense of self first is so important because we don't know who we are. We don't know. I don't know what my truth is when I've been abused and gaslit for that long. I'm curious what your perspective is on, on this, because I have had so many conversations with women where even though that's their reality, where they feel like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know which way is up. He says I'm super controlling. I don't, I, I guess I, you know, like that whole mindfuck of what am I? What I see is that there's always been an inkling. There has always been an intuition. And I like to call it the cognitive override, where instead of listening to our intuition, we go, well, I know he means well, or ah, I have been spending a lot of money. Or We do all of this rationale and logic that's not congruent with what's really happening in the recesses of our heart. So do you see that at all, where that, that intuition was there, that truth was there, we just fucking ignore it. And that's not that's not uh, compartmentalized to only women going through divorce. This can be in relationships. This can be with your bosses. This can be, you know, a myriad of situations. 100%. Look, scientifically proven, women have incredibly strong intuition. Yes. Which is why we have the patriarchy. We've got entire systems that are set up to deny our reality of what we know to be true right? Let's, you know, you and I have gone through this, like we can start with a diet, diet industrial complex, right? An entire $60 billion industry dedicated to telling women that they don't feel what they feel and that what they know, what they know about themselves isn't right. Just down to like hunger and fullness cues. Right. Yes. Don't listen to that. Shutting down intuition. Like the entire patriarchy is basically based on men's fear of women's intuition. <laughs> and how powerful it is. We were burned at the stake for it. So we do have this. It is strong. And also, it is very real that there's so much in our culture and in our relationships that put a damper on it. Subjugation. Yeah. Absolutely. When I have even the simplest exercise, Amy, of just close your eyes, close your eyes, what do you know? Boom. Boom. Like, huh. and then all the cognitive override, inner critic, right? Well, it's just you. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, I start the book with strengthening this connection with your intuitive self. Yes. Because it knows. It may know things you don't want to know. It knows things that you like. I don't want to know that I, that this relationship is really toxic. I don't want to know that really my only option right now is to get the fuck out. I don't want to know that. <laughs> and I've I've had that experience many times with I can't tell you how many marriages have been casualties in my work. Oh. I'm sure yours <laughs> well, as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it's a great thing. And I will have conversations with people when we start because my obviously a lot of my stuff is around conversation, communication, and worthiness and your enoughness, right? And 
once women are genuinely anchored into their own self-worth, their own enoughness, their own intrinsic value, they start seeing things that are so subpar and they realize that their bullshit tolerance is getting real, real low. And you start to, but again, to your point, if you're in the midst of an abusive situation, you're still just floundering around looking for that switch. And I really think it takes a point where either your hands are too raw, you can't keep grasping for those switch. Something happens where you're like, no, I've got to start leaning into this internal compass. Um, and the great news about that is it's just atrophied. It's not gone. We still have it. You just have to nurture it and get it back to speed. <laughs> exactly. And you have to want to. Again, like you said, like it's hard. It's not, it's not like an easy, nobody's out here wanting to get divorced. We're all out here wanting to save our marriages. But at a certain point, we may you may have to face the truth of your marriage and what it really is. Um, and that the only thing that you really need to focus on saving is yourself and possibly your kids. I I have a question for you. Just one final question before we wrap up. I've I've known you for a very long time. I've seen you ups and downs through dating scenarios, being on apps, all the men with the fish in their photos. <laughs> Stop doing that, dudes. It, fishing is not your entire personality. No, neither are your abs, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious because I have so many folks in my life who, who have said, I don't think what you and Mr. Smith have exists really for anyone else. Um, I also personally don't feel like a long-term tenured relationship needs to be everyone's goal. I think we're fulfilled in totally different ways. And I think you can be massively fulfilled being asexual or, you know, any number of different ways to be fulfilled. I'm curious for you how you perceive dating, relationship, love at all these days. Like, is is it... I could imagine having such a negatively colored lens through which to look, which is reality, unfortunately, that would impede you from even wanting to bother. Yes. <laughs> the, answer the answer is, is yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, look, I every time there I go back and forth, right? I go in and out. I have not I have not been in a relationship for I think seven years. Um, and I was a serial monogamous. Like I was always, I always had a boyfriend, right? Like literally my whole life. Um, and we're talking about that divide of women doing the work and sort of outgrowing the men in, in their lives. I also live in Los Angeles, which is just the worst place for a middle-aged, not super skinny model, you know, not 35 year old person to be dating. Like it's terrible. Right. Um, every once in a while I'm like, Oh, maybe I missed something and I'll go back on the apps and it'll be about a month and a half. And I'm like, I didn't miss anything. I don't know if you've heard this, but the way that men and women use apps like Bumble, um, they use it differently. This should come as no surprise. And yet it's shocking to me. When you're on, on an app like Bumble, you swipe right if you like the person and left if you don't. Now, the way women 
use it is that we read the profile, we look at the pictures, we're like, oh, I like him and I swipe right. If if you both swipe right on the person, then you match. And then the woman has to come up with something to say because Bumble was created as a response to Tinder where men were sleazy. Okay. So now it's on us, right? Because men are sleazy. Now we have to do more of the work. Right. Just stop being sleazy. Right. So we have to like, now we have to make the first move because men can't be trusted to make the first move. So what was what started happening after a couple of years is that women, and this was my experience, is that we would swipe right, we would get a match and we'd go, oh, cool. Then we'd spend the time, come up with something nice to say. We'd reach out to them and then we you would get unmatched. I don't understand. So I asked a guy friend of mine and he said, oh no, what we do is we just like sit on the toilet and we we just swipe right on everybody. And then we only look at your profile if we match. So it's like a spray and pray. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, so again, we have to do all the fucking labor. So I don't know, Amy. I listen, you know me. I am a absolutely hopeful romantic. I want Mm -hmm. to fall in love and I want partnership and I would love to have someone to curl up on the couch with and watch Dateline with at the end of the day. But I am not okay with settling. I am simply not. People say to me all the time, what if I'm alone? What if I'm alone forever? What if I, and I'm like, so what if you are? So here's the thing. You can either be alone forever or you can be with this shit bag forever. At least if you're out, you have a chance of something nice. If you're in, like you're in. Right. Um, so you know, I'm I'm happy. Look, I'm 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 I've got a successful career. I've got an incredible kid. I have got amazing friends. And I'm good. I would love to meet someone who wanted to get on board with that, but I'm literally not settling for it. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing all of this. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours and we <laughs> have, uh, but what, where can people get the book? Um, this will be airing in January, so it'll already be out. Tell them all the things. I'm so happy to be here and talk to you. I love you so much. Um, so it's everywhere. It's anywhere and everywhere. Um, there's a page on my website. My website is kateanthony.com. And there is a page on my site uh, that gives you some ideas and options for how to uh, buy the book that in ways that where it won't maybe show up in your Amazon uh, order history if you have a shared Amazon account. Um, so I have some ideas and ways that you might be able to buy it a little bit more on the DL. Um, but it is available absolutely anywhere and everywhere. Um, you know, go to your local bookstore use some cash, keep it in your purse. (laughs) It's always a good way. And it is called? It is called The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage. Everything about me is on my website, kateanthony.com. I am on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. And my podcast is The Divorce Survival Guide Podcast. And that's everywhere. And you have a curated podcast playlist, too, that they can snag for free on your site, too. I do. Thank you for mentioning that. I do. I have a curated podcast playlist. So if you're like, oh, this is a lot of episodes, I want to just listen to the ones that actually relate to me and what I'm going through, you can answer like four questions and I'll give and I'll send that to you. Nice. So please, everyone, go check this out. I send so many clients Kate's way because you you really, truly are an authority in this landscape. Mm-hmm. And it's been unbelievably rewarding just 
as a friend to see you truly own that authority and kind of take the world by storm and change so many lives. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And thank you for your friendship. Thank you, sweetie. I love you so much. I love you too. Well, there you have it. I hope that episode was super enlightening for you. Please do not forget to scoot over to the show notes page on whatever platform you are on. Just click the information on the specific podcast and you can get all of the links that we mentioned. You can check out Kate's book, her podcast, and don't forget to grab the curated podcast playlist that she's put together specifically around knowing should I stay? Should I go? Uh, I don't know. And what I want you to hear more than anything else is that you are not alone. You are not uniquely broken. There is not something wrong with you because you're not able to get through to your partner. In fact, there are probably so many other dynamics that are far outside of your control. But there is hope and there is a possibility of you reclaiming your life. So please be sure to check out all those links in the show notes. You can also find them over at amygreensmith.com slash EP499. And I will see you around these parts next week for our final podcast episode. And please remember, you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and speak your bold faced truth. Peace. Okay, wait, 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 just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding, but I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you. Bye.